0: We'll have some folks slide in here in a little bit, but for now, we'll get started. Jeff, you hit that for me. I want to, um, first off, let you know that I've got a little pamphlet here for something called Covenant Eyes. If you know anybody or know of somebody, well, if you know of somebody or you are somebody that could use some information like this, this is for an um, a internet monitoring system, is what it is. And really, what you can do is um, I'm trying it this month just to see what's, what it's like, kind of get a sense of what's involved there. I've got two accountability guys that I send reports to. They get a report, they can get one every day or every week of where I go on the web and how much time I spend there. And it's good to have a set of, a couple sets of eyes watching you, you know, and just knowing that these guys are out there, you know, it's kind of an accountability thing. It's about six bucks a month, I think, if you do it month by month. And uh, there are some group plans and stuff like that, but um, I think you can have as many, uh, maybe it's just two accountability partners. But uh, if somebody likes some information about this, I've got this up here and you all can take a look at that. The, um, the web can be a great thing, but it can also be a time vacuum or even a sin vacuum. It just can draw you right into the world with some of the trash that you can escort right into your home. And uh, it's good to have some eyes helping you monitor that. Um, I want to read last couple of weeks. I, didn't do, I failed to do this last week, but I wanted to read some prisoner profiles from Voice of the Martyrs. And I want to share with you a guy named Abraham Bentar, a Muslim had studied the Koran since childhood. In 1998, at the age of 48, he had a stroke related to his hypertension and diabetes. After a pastor prayed for his healing, Abraham had a dream of a man in a white robe. He thought the man's face was the same face he had seen on a painting of Jesus at the neighbor's home. He bargained with the vision, saying he would accept Jesus as Lord and Savior if he were healed from the stroke. He was healed, and the same pastor arranged for a church near Abraham to disciple him. Abraham was baptized and attended a school for Bible study. He evangelized Muslims as he sold clothing in villages in west and central Java. His uh, brother-in-law filed charges against him saying that Abraham tried to force Christianity on him and had blasphemed the prophet Muhammad. On March 7, 2006, Abraham was visiting relatives in west Java when he was attacked by a group of Muslims who beat him severely. They rolled over his van and helped themselves to his contents, including a new clothing merchandise. As the melee continued, they were joined by other Muslims and began shouting, Burn him. They set fire to his van before police arrived just in time to rescue him. Originally, he was detained in the Tasik Malaya police station for security reasons, but was later charged with blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad. At his trial, he was sentenced to four and a half years and then transferred to a local prison in Tasik Malaya. There's another profile to share with you. Prisoner's name is Mua Seso. In 2002, police and militia burst into Mua Seso's home and beat and tortured his four married brothers in front of their families. His younger brother, Mua Bua Sin, died after he was beaten twice mercilessly. Seeking justice for his brother's murder, So tried to p- petition the government. He photographed his, photographed his brother lying in the coffin along with a sign that said, Beaten to death because of following the gospel." Because of this action, he was later arrested and charged with the murder. During his hearing in April 2003, Mua Seiso was sentenced to three years in prison for murdering his brother and for falsely accusing the police. He lost his house and his wife fled with her children to a safe area. While in prison, he's been forced, he's still in prison, and he was sentenced in 2003. While in prison, he's been forced to break rocks for construction projects. He's also had to plant vegetables. The prisoners are given only two meals a day consisting of two bowls of rice with vegetables and salt. Families that are able to take food to the prisoners or to supplement their diet and maintain their health. Mua Say-So is not allowed to pray over his food. The police told him that if he would deny God, he would be released. He continues to stand firm in his faith following Jesus. Sometimes it's good to hear about uh, that we have a big world and we have other believers out there that are facing some, some challenges for their faith. You know, we can grow so comfortable and so complacent that we think that the rest of the world has the same privileges to worship and study that we have. And uh, we also sometimes fail to realize that we should be praying for those folks that are in prison and um, are dying for their faith or being persecuted for their faith and praying that they'll stand, just stand strong in the face of it. So tonight, let's pray for these two guys, Mua Say So and um, Abraham Bintar. And let's also pray for uh, Jake and Stephanie, who I think will be heading back to um, Kazakhstan here pretty soon. I think they're still in Dubai. And they're kind of on the tail end of just having a baby and just kind of finishing up all the paperwork and you know, health issues involved with that before they come back to Kazakhstan so, or go back to Kazakhstan. So let's pray for those guys and pray for our study tonight. Lord, we want to uh, just pray for these two men that are being persecuted for their faith. And uh, we will pray that they will stand strong. Pray that they will stand in the face of persecution. And that, in fact that in spite of the persecution and maybe because of the persecution that they shine brighter and that you are glorified in that uh, terrible time. Um, Pray that they will just uh, trust you as you're on your throne. Pray that they will just have the sense that there are other believers that don't even know them on the other side of the world that are praying for them, praying for their, their walk, praying for their faithfulness, praying for their perseverance, praying for their families. Lord, I just pray that you'll be glorified through those uh, difficulties and um, in some weird way that must be divine, we thank you for the difficulties and we thank you that you're glorified in them. Uh, Lord, in our in our case, in our situation, in our context of being safe and um, free to study the Bible, free to share our faith, I pray that first of all, we never take that for granted and um, secondly, I pray that we will not miss the realities that we are still at war and that our flesh and um, all the things that the world has to offer is waging war with our souls and just pray that we will be mindful of that and realize that just because we're in um, a setting that allows for us to gather corporately that it doesn't mean that we are not still at war or we appreciate these men and how they're standing and pray that they'll be an encouragement to us pray for Jake and Stephanie also and pray for their transition back to Kazakhstan. Lord, I pray that that you will um just give Luke health as he is um uh just starting to um take on life, whatever that means in terms of uh um, the first few weeks of life. Just pray that he is being that he is growing healthy and I pray for mom that Stephanie is recovering. Uh, Lord, we pray for little Luke's soul right off, just even before he's uh, speaking and really aware of anything. We pray for his soul that you're drawing into the son, and he'll come to know the son at an early age, and then he'll be captivated with Christ, and he'll be um, salty and bright. Uh, Lord, we just pray for the the Huck family's transition back to Kazakhstan. Pray that they'll come back refueled, uh, that they'll come back encouraged. They'll come back also knowing that they have a body of believers here on the opposite side of the world that are are walking with them and uh, lifting them up and, and are asking you to just bathe them in your mercy and your grace and to fill them to overflowing onto the people of Astana. Uh, Lord, we love you so much. We just turn this time over to you tonight the study and pray that you'll be glorified in where we go and what we dig into. and um, uh, We just turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. How many of y'all got the email I sent out this afternoon about what this is going to be about? Okay, a few of you did? Okay, we were going to move back into Revelation and finish up the last chapter of Revelation. But um, I opted for kind of tying up the study we've been in the last few weeks. It's kind of been a complicated study and I felt like there were some things left on the table and I felt like it kind of needed to be brought together. Uh, so then the the next Wednesday actually let me go ahead and make an announcement right now this next Wednesday we won't meet because it's spring break and lots of people are going to be gone including myself and we could have a teacher here but I think it's a good break for everybody so we'll take a break next week and then the next Wednesday after that we're going to climb right back into Revelation and finish up the book of Revelation then we'll be going from there to the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights so low crawling through the book of Genesis okay um but tonight, we, um, we need to kind of put some closure to this study, this complicated study that we've been in, the Two Wills of God study, the mean study that we did last week. kind of fit into that. It was an appropriate um, thing to include in this study, but uh, what we're going to do tonight is hopefully kind of put some closure on this thing and may tie up some loose ends that, you've, that have come unfrayed over the course of the last few weeks and that uh, you'd like to have tied up. Um, turn to 1 Timothy chapter... Well, actually turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. There are three passages that I'm going to share with you that I shared at the beginning, beginning of this study, this Two Wills of God study, that I would say are the three legs of the stool of understanding salvation as a partnership um, or even a choice. I say partnership because most of the people that I know, including myself for most of my life, would have described my understanding of salvation as being something that God mostly does, but that I participate in at least to to the extent where I choose Him. And I didn't save myself in that choice. He saved me, but there's some relationship there where I saw His wonderful works and I saw His Christ and I saw His cross and empty tomb and I said, I want that. And um, it's just in the last few years where that has changed for me and these three passages were really at least one of them this passage we're going to focus on primarily tonight not Ezekiel but in first Timothy was probably my primary uh, stance for where I would say yes there's a choice yes God it's a it's kind of a partnership mostly him but at least part of me but tonight we're going to look at at least introducing two of those legs we're going to talk about two of those legs of that stool of what I would call a less than a sovereign God. If, if we're going to say that there's kind of a partnership there, I'm going to call that stool an understanding of a less than sovereign God because you can't have it both ways. You can't have a choosy people and then a sovereign God because for man to be able to choose, man becomes sovereign. So it, you need to pick, pick where you are and say, okay, if I'm in that place where Ben used to be, where he sees kind of a partnership, where it's mostly God but a little bit of me, then go ahead and resign yourself to this, that you don't see God as sovereign. You may see him as powerful, but not sovereign as sovereign would be defined. Okay, here's, here's another picture. These three passages contribute to this stool of less than a choosing God. Because God may choose, but it may be based on something. That's oftentimes where people go. Yes, God would predestine and God would foreknow and God would ordain belief, but it's based on those who He would see a kernel of truth in or a kernel of belief in at some point down the road in the future before they were ever made, so that's why He would choose them. So the choosing is partnered. It's part mostly God, but then it's part us. Okay, and this is all part of that stool. Uh, It would also be a view of not only less than a sovereign God, but less than a choosing God, it would be also less than a saving God. It would be kind of a partnership. It would be less than a rescuing God and less than a quickening God. Those are a lot of the verbs that you see about saving pictures, about what God does to us, that He rescues, He quickens, He saves, He chooses, He foreknows, He elects. It's all over the Bible. I know how unsavory it is, for our Western minds and even our logic sometimes. We feel like, that just doesn't reason. But I, I hope that maybe tonight, if you haven't been part of this study, you'll see some of that. If you have been part of that stu- this study, that you'll see some closure to this tonight that will really bring, th- bring some things together. Ezekiel chapter 18, I'm going to look at one of the legs of the stool first. Ezekiel chapter 18, um, verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live? It's asked as if, well, of course I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Okay, that, and, and we can trust that that's true. As I've shared before, uh, we can trust that all Scripture is God-breathed. We can trust that all Scripture is true, but we have to be resigned to the, realis- to, the to the reality that not every single verse reveals the truth completely. Every single verse is completely true, but it does not reveal the truth completely. So if you read this verse and you say, man, that's completely true. But if you couple that with, but it doesn't reveal the truth completely, then let's also go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Keep your finger in Ezekiel maybe. I don't know if we'll need to, but you may want to kind of compare words there. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Excuse me, First Samuel chapter 2. If you're in there, kind of put your hand in that First Samuel chapter 2, but go back and look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. And this word here in verse 23, do I have any pleasure, this word pleasure, is a word that's translated different. It's the same word in Hebrew, but it's translated different over here in 1 Samuel chapter, tw- chapter 2, specifically verse 25. Now, I'm going to read a few verses for the sake of context, starting in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You can hear the cry of a father for his sons. Don't do this, sons. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. That word desired is the same word that's used over here in Ezekiel chapter 18. And it's actually delighted. So we know that the Lord does not take pleasure. The Lord does not delight. The Lord does not desire the death of the wicked. Yet at the same time, he's desiring and delighting in and taking pleasure in the death of Eli's sons. It's hard to understand, you know, if 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 all we had was the satellite of Ezekiel, and I, I keep introducing this imagery of the GPS, and I have to do it every Wednesday night because I can't assume that we've all been here. But a GPS works off multiple satellites. The more satellites it has, really, it only needs three. But the principle is, it needs at least three satellites to give you a robust, true reading. If it doesn't have three satellites, it won't even tell you. It won't even make an attempt at it. So the same, it's similar to the picture of the Scripture is you need multiple satellites. The more satellites you have in, added into a truth, the more robust the, the, the reality that it tells you. As you stand here, you go, this is true because I've got all these satellites that are added in. If the only satellite we had was Ezekiel chapter 18, God says, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, do I? Of course not. If that was our only satellite, then we would say, well, wait a second, God surely wouldn't destroy the wicked because he doesn't take any pleasure in it. But then when you go over here to 1 Samuel chapter 2, you go, wait a second. He does take pleasure in the, di- in the death of these two wicked, the sons of Eli. So, the Lord desired to put them to death. They didn't l- listen to their father's good counsel because the Lord desired to put them to death. Okay, so God does not desire the death of the wicked, yet he desired to put to put death the sons of Eli. And here's, here's the reality. If you take both of these satellites, then you realize that in one sense, God may desire the death of the wicked, and yet in another sense, he may not. Okay, how can he do this? How can God get away with that? What would you say? Because he's God, yeah. Because he's God. And because he made us. And because he can do with us, the potter can do with the clay whatever he wants to do that's not very popular in the western mind the kumbaya god that we crawl up in his lap and he's got a stogie and an old man t-shirt and he slaps us on our back and who yucks it up with us that that doesn't reconcile with this sort of god because we've also all many of us have been taught since our birth god has a special plan for your life you're a special little snowflake and it, who's who's that about it's about me It's not who made you, well, God made you. Why did he make you? For his own glory. Oh, who's that about? That's about God. But if you're not fed that, it's like what I was thinking about the other day. It's like if you've never been introduced to the color red. Well, you've been introduced to it, but you've never been taught what it is. But then one day you discover it, someone teaches it to you, and you go, whoa, it's everywhere. It's all over the room. That's kind of what this is. If you've never been taught it, and you've always been taught that you're a special little snowflake, and you've never been introduced to this big sovereign God that can in one case destroy and take pleasure in the, in the destruction of these wicked, and yet in another case not, then it's just like, wait a second, There's, what is that? Is that red? That's weird. I've never seen that before. But trust it, I'm not making it up. It's right here in front of us. It's right here in front of us. I love my Sunday school teachers that I grew up under. But they never taught me this. But I still love them. You don't have to reject mommy and daddy and your, your his, history in, in Sunday school and every teacher that ever taught you and say, you're a wicked, despicable person for not teaching me this. Man, I adore them. They're part of my journey. But I wouldn't embrace what I was taught now. But it was part of my journey. So you don't have to do, um, you don't have to do Harry Carey. That's, that's not a good picture. You don't have to kill all your history. Embrace that as part of your journey, but see what the word says right in front of us. Okay, we can affirm that God does not delight in the perishing of anyone, yet in some ways he does. Okay, here's the second thing we can confirm and affirm. We can confirm and affirm that he has compassion, a certain amount of compassion on all people. Okay, we, we can confirm and affirm that he has a certain amount of compassion on all people and we can also affirm the unconditional election of some. A couple of passages. Turn to Romans chapter 8. It's funny... Sometimes when I turn to Romans 8, 9, and 10 range, when, we're, when I'm talking about this sort of issue about a big sovereign God and about a small, wretched, undeserving man, um, sometimes these chapters are kind of dismissed. Like, oh, man, that's kind of where you guys always go. Uh, what do you do with it? I mean, do you tear it out? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's about three chapters worth of some pretty rich teaching on this. So do you tear it out or do you add it in as one of your satellites? I would offer that it's a big, fat satellite. Let's listen to this passage. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also um, glorified. Now turn also, also to Ephesians chapter 1. All we're doing is just taking a kind of a brief glimpse of a couple of passages that point to uh, the unconditional election. I mean, it, it's really, once, once you begin to see the color red, you see it everywhere. And uh, these are just a few pictures of red. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he, he, he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Lots of passages that help us affirm that there's a reality, unconditional election. I, it may be unsavory to you. I completely understand. Completely. This made me mad before it made me worship. I'm just telling you, I was hacked. As I preached John chapter 6, I was hacked. But I resigned to preach the next passage, to believe the last one, the one I'm on, and the one coming up. And I had to reckon with it. So it it, it may make you mad, I understand. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight. <clears throat> this is the second leg, the first uh, leg of that stool of uh, a less than sovereign God or a, a less than rescued man, more than rescued man. I don't know what, uh, what I'm trying to say, but a more than uh, desperate man, somebody, the that, man that's a little bit more than completely destitute. Um, this is the second leg of that. First Timothy chapter 2, and this is really, this verse right here is where I built my theology of choice for years on one satellite. Remember, a verse can be completely true yet not reveal the truth completely. That's true of this one. First Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to offer three responses to this passage. Okay, let me read it. First of all, then, I urge that in treaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, Okay, now realize who this is written to. It's written from Paul. It's written to Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy as he pastors to do these things with his people, to encourage this among his people. And he says, I encourage you to pray for all men. Okay, would, would anybody, have you ever seen a teaching, a biblical teaching, where God says pray for every individual person on the earth? Is that even possible? Is it? I mean, has anybody done that? I I haven't done that. I pray for people that the Lord brings across my path, or I pray for these guys that we read about, or I pray for names that come up, or needs, or lost people, or saved people, or whoever it is, a name that the Lord puts on my heart. But I don't pray for all men, every individual man. Hopefully, I pray for all sorts of men. That's where I'm offering that this passage if you read it in context that's what this is talking about is all sorts of men and is the first clue first of all then i urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men and i would offer that that's referring to all sorts of men Now i'll tell you why about what what's because of what's coming up for kings and all who are in authority if you're reading that with me all sorts of people that are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our, fa- God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I believe that good contextual interpretation of this passage says pray for all sorts of men. Don't exclude kings and those in authority just because they're kings and those in authority. Pray for all sorts of men because God wants and desires all sorts of men to be saved. I, I don't think that's gymnastics, and that's based on a pretty thorough study. But, you know, at the same time while I say that, I realize that I may be trying to superimpose where I am right now on the passage. Okay? I realize that. Then I think if you look at that whole passage in context, verse 2 and 3 and really 4 is a qualifier for verse 1. Right. And, that, and that's where I see, though, all sorts of men. Right. Right.: Right. I, I feel very good about that, but at the same time, having what I would hopefully call a hermeneutic of humility, I want to say, OK, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm trying to superimpose what I think on this passage? Now, if I only had this passage and my only other satellite was Ezekiel chapter 18, we have to include that satellite, right? So that's why I have humility in regard to the interpretation I just offered you. And that's why I'm offering it as one of three. And here are two other treatments of this passage. I'm going to read it again just so, we have, just so it's fresh before we listen to these next two possibilities. First of all, then, I urge that in and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay. Here's the second possibility, that God really does want all to be saved. Okay, now listen to this. What if he wants all to be saved, but despite his desire, something bigger is keeping him from acting on that desire? Well, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Let me let, me, let me, Okay, we we're, we're gonna go there, but I, I want us to get the big headings here on these next two possibilities because they both have this. You really got to use your head on this. All right. In fact, I'm gonna pray that we can get this. Let's pray. God, I want us to use. um, I want you to use more than our heads, but to open our eyes, incline our hearts to your testimonies, open the eyes of our hearts, enlighten our eyes. Um, Just pray that you'll give us insight into this these uh, difficult truths that we're about to consider. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm gonna rephrase. If I'm wrong about that first possibility, which I could be. First possibility that it's a context issue and that in context that he wants all sorts of men to be saved, which is different from wanting all men to be saved. Right, it could. It could, okay? But if, if, we, if we're going to read this as it states and not go there, and if you're going to say he wants all men to be saved, okay? If he wants all men to be saved, but despite his desire, something bigger and more valuable keeps him from saving all. There's two possibilities of things that may keep him from saving all. Okay, I want you to think about what those two possibilities might be. Okay, that's one. That's one. To, that he may be glorified in his justice in not saving them. Okay, we're going to consider that. What's, what's the other possibility? that he values human self-determination and free will so much that he won't compromise man's choice. Now, let's at least consider the possibility. (laughs) If you know me, you know I'm not going there. But I want to address it, because that's where most of us are. We feel like he... Well, that's why he doesn't save all, because of human self-determination and the supposed... I put supposed in parentheses. It should be in quotation marks or, I don't know, whatever... It, it, whatever, it isn't something to set it off, as in, and the supposed resultant love relationship with God that's more valuable than saving all by His sovereign saving grace. That if He's able to save everyone, and if He desires to save everyone, but He doesn't, then could it be because He values man's choice so much that he doesn't want as as you've heard it said probably before God is a gentleman he doesn't force himself on anybody I've heard it from pulpits before I don't know where it is in here Yeah it's in first opinions I think but I haven't found it in here so possibly here's the second possibility that he wants all to be saved but despite his desire of wanting all to be saved The something bigger and more valuable that keeps him from saving all, something that's more valuable to him than saving everybody, is that he does not impose himself on man. That Human self-determination is just that valuable to him. So he won't, despite the fact that he can save them, he doesn't want to compromise their choice. Okay, that's the second possibility. Huh? Right, right. Now... It's kind of funny to think about. If you're burning in hell, I don't, I don't think you'd mind him being invasive. I mean, my thoughts. But, okay, here's, here's the third possibility. He wants all to be saved, but despite his desire, something bigger and more valuable keeps him from saving all. And that that bigger and more valuable thing may be the manifestation of the full range of God's glory in wrath and mercy and, secondly, the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving credit to God for his whole salvation. We're going to explore that, because I know if you're hearing that for the first time, you're like, whoa, I don't know what in the world homeboy just said. I'm going to read it again, and then we'll explore these two things. That maybe this thing that's more valuable to him, if I'm misunderstanding this passage, which could be, it could be, if I'm not interpreting well, and if, in fact, he does desire all men to be saved, maybe that's something bigger that keeps him from saving all, is that he wants to manifest the full range of his mercy and wrath and everything in between so that he'll be glorified. Hold on a second. So that he'll be glorified. And coupled with that, that he wants to humble man, that he likes a humble man. And he likes the humility of man to see him as the big saver, as the big deed deliverer, as the one who does the entire work. So that's why he doesn't save all. Okay, now we're gonna explore that in a minute. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know full well that God doesn't like murder, right? Does anybody doubt that God likes murder? Is it one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not murder? Will we trust that that's God's will? Okay, yeah, that's God's will. But at the same time, God allowed and, in fact, ordained the murder of his own son for a greater good, for a greater outcome. So we trust that his will is that we don't murder anybody. But that's in the small sense. In the bigger sense, his will was that, in this case, that his son's going to be glorified. So in fact, not only will he allow it, he'll ordain it, the murder of his own son. Predestined, that's the word that's used for the murder of his own son. It was predetermined. Okay, now, here's here's where we're going to go. As far as the evidence for number two, that God values human self-determination and the supposed resultant love relationship, let's look for the biblical evidence for that. It's not in here. There is no evidence for that. There is no evidence that God values our human self-determination. That is such a man-made Western idea. But I I understand. It's what I've been fed ever since my birth. But it's not in here. God's not sitting around saying, I I, I want Jonah to just kind of go to Nineveh whenever he's ready. Jesus wouldn't say, you know, disciples, I I want you guys to be able to make a choice about whether to follow me. You know, I know fishing's cool. I know you really like those nets, but if you will, you know, maybe put those nets down and come follow me. God didn't say, "Uh, you know, if light really feels like it, let let there be light. Man, when God speaks, and when God the Son speaks, bam, it happens. It happens. When God says, follow me, you follow him, or you find yourself in the belly of a whale. I mean, there's no contending with the living God. I I just don't see it. I don't see that God places a premium on human self-determination. Really, here's the picture. Since we have no kids in here, I'm going to introduce you to a passage of Scripture in a moment. But here's the principle behind the passage of Scripture. I couldn't do this with kids in here because it's probably the raciest chapter in the Bible it's going to be embarrassing reading it, but we need to hear it. But here's the principle behind it. Here's, here's what it's, huh? Yeah, that's true. I, I'm, I, I don't mind being embarrassed. It's really more, if we want to know what, what this is about, really more than God valuing health, human self-determination and the supposed resultant love relationship, it's really more about God rescuing a whore and giving that whore a whole new heart after him. That's the biblical picture of salvation. And I'm going to show you a whole couple of chapters that will show you that. Just so you know I didn't make it up. Like, man, that guy's pretty racy. The word, you're going to find out, is pretty racy. Okay, we'll go to that in a minute. Let's consider, and this is part of what we'll look at in a minute, the evidence for number three, that God wants to manifest the full range of his glory and wrath and mercy and everything in between, and the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving all the credit to God for his salvation. Okay, let's look at Romans chapter 9. This is what Jason just mentioned. Let's look at the passage. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole thing. Because it's just so good. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why is Paul sad? Yeah, he's upset, man. He's a Jew. He's a Jew among Jews. And yet all the Jews aren't in droves following Christ. They're all, the whole nation of Israel is not following Christ. They're not seeing him as a Messiah. And he's sad about that. That's why he's sad. Now listen to what he says. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Paul just bust out in a prayer. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. He's saying, you know, they've been eating the Scripture, Torah, for 1,500 years. But it's not as though the Word has, has failed because they all didn't go following Christ. For they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would, be, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. It's not about an injustice. That's not fair. It's not about that. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How can he get away with that? Because he's God. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, Are the people, the person that thinks that they have some kernel of truth or kernel, not kernel of truth, kernel belief inside them, it's not dependent on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. We've become intimately equated with that story. Where God hardened Pharaoh's heart just so he could slam him. How could he get away with that? Because he's God. Because he's going to be glorified through it. And how did he slam him? There were ten of them. Remember what they were called? Plagues, blows, frogs, gnats, flies, darkness that could be felt, dead livestock, Nile turned to blood, Passover, locusts. What else was there? Boils and hail. Man, the full gamut. For this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. How can he get away with that? Because he's God. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Can you see vessels of mercy without the backdrop of vessels of wrath? Is there such thing as a vessel of mercy without the backdrop of a vessel of wrath? Yeah. He's my Savior. I don't know what I'm saved from. That's why so many Christians have a spoon deep faith. Because all they've eaten is the New Testament. They haven't eaten. They haven't met this big sovereign God. They haven't met the law. They haven't been tutored by the law that leads us to Christ. They've just been led to Christ. Maybe with a, a short prayer and a trip down and out. Not minimizing that. But if that's all there is, you don't know the big God. You haven't met the whole robust God. So this sort of principle, when you're hearing it preached or taught, you go, man, that doesn't make sense. When you've dined on the Old Testament beyond a Veggie Tales level, you go, okay, I already know that God. That makes total sense, the same God that chose Israel among all nations of the earth. Well, yeah, I already know him. That makes sense. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but from among Gentiles. The full range of glory in wrath and mercy. If you don't have a backdrop of wrath, you can't see mercy. What are you being saved from? What is the gift of grace without punishment in the backdrop? What is being liberated from death row if there is no chair? If you don't hear people being zapped every now and again and see the The lights flicker and smell burnt hair. What's grace in that without that? There is no grace. And that's why people kind of, I mean, there's a potential just to see God as kind of an insurance agent. But when you dine on this Old Testament God, you go, ooh, man, he's no insurance agent. Ooh, that's Savior and Lord. That's why I can hear the rush in the wind of the destroyer overhead. And that's why I'm going to hustle up with a hyssop branch. And I'm going to make roast the lamb. It changes things, doesn't it, when you meet this Old Testament God? And it also changes your response to him. Man, you cast yourself at the foot of the cross. You don't go purchase your policy. It's just a very different response. A full range of glory and wrath and mercy. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> Verses twenty eight and twenty-nine. Actually, I'm gonna read twenty seven also. I read this before as kind of the attitude of the chosen. <laughs> yeah. Just so you don't sit around and say, hey man, check me out. I'm one of the chosen. I'm one of the elect. <laughs> check me out. Yeah, Jesus right here in my heart. I got it going on going on. I'm on the I'm on the Jesus team. Maybe you might be elect too, if you're lucky. That sort of attitude. When you read this passage, you go, wait a second, let let me be educated by this passage. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Uh Uh-oh. He chose the foolish things of the world. That's me. To shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. Okay. If I'm going to be honest and I'm going to let this word reveal who I am, like a mirror and stand before it, then I'm finding that I'm foolish and weak. To shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not. You remember the Sunday where I called you guys all the things that are not? That's us. The people that are not. That's who God has chosen. So that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. God places a premium on humbling man. He likes the thought of a humble man that gives him all the glory and salvation. He chose the base things, the things which are not, not the things that had some kernel of belief in them, that had some redeeming value. He chose the worst and the base and the the foolish and the weak and the things which are not to be glorified. And why did he do that? So no man may boast. Yeah, among all people of the earth Israel there's nothing special about Israel and Israel in fact I'm going to introduce you to the biblical Israel in a few minutes in this racy chapter I told you I'm going to read but first I want to look at a passage we've been looking at the last few weeks God does indeed want to manifest the full range of his wrath and mercy. And we've been, sit, we've been dining on that the last few weeks in the Passover. Because in that one night, you see the full range. Because it's a night of deliverance for some, but a night of what for others? Judgment and what else? It starts with a D. And you know, we, preachers got to use the same letters for the beginning of the thing. Deliverance for some, and what else for d- death and destruction? There's two Ds. That's good. You I'm telling you, gift of preaching right there. Destruction and deliverance in the same night. I mean, that's the full gamut. He's, he's telling Moses to go lead his people out of Egypt, and yet he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's the full gamut. And then in that one night, and even in that midnight hour, he's destroying some, and yet he's liberating others. But those people being liberated would not see him as the big deed deliverer except for that night of destruction. He wanted them to see the blows. That's why I think we'll be here the tribulation i'm not a pre-trib rapture and that's why because he kept the nation of israel there says pay attention watch the blows i'm about to administer to this people pay attention here and i want you to see every one of them and then i'll lead you out on that last night on that last blow and you're going to see me as big d deliverer you see a lot of symbolism a lot of the same imagery that you see in the plagues in the book of Revelation. It's not something, not a hill that I'm going to die on, whether it's pre, post, or mid. But when I consider the way God operates in this context where he wants his people to be there and to see those things and to see his mighty blows on this people of judgment, it wouldn't surprise me if he keeps us here until the seventh trump. Okay. Here's a passage that I want to share with you, though, in Exodus chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. That's what the motive of this whole thing is. I'm going to demonstrate that I am God. What have we been saying all night? How can God get away with this? How can he get away with this? Because he's what? Because he's God. And it's, it's all throughout the Old Testament, where he's doing it again and again and again, where he's creating these dark, are these, these desperate tensions where he shows up as the big D deliverer. And why is he doing that? So he can show up as the big D deliverer, the big G God, so that everybody can know that he is God. And I appear to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to him. By my, by my name, Yahweh is what that is in the original language. This is an intimate age where I'm going to move to a more intimate level with you guys. You guys are going to know me by my personal name, Yahweh. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. Would they see him as big D deliverer if they hadn't, hadn't had that groaning? If they hadn't felt the slavery of brick making and poking and clawing at the earth? If they hadn't felt the lash on their back? Would they see him as Savior and Lord if they hadn't experienced that first? Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord just in case they're ever going to forget. <laughs> you see what God's about. He's about His own fame, His own glory. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment, the blows. Bam, bam, ten of them, bam. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Deliverance is best appreciated in the backdrop of destruction. That seems to be God's redemptive pattern. Now, turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Whenever... I have even the thought of entertaining when I go back to my thoughts of thinking that man that those whom he foreknew had some sort of seed or kernel of belief in them all I have to do is read Ezekiel chapter 16 Yeah Ezekiel period you're right but Ezekiel chapter 16 if if you need to know where man stands with the holy god where all men stand with the holy god hey, here's here's where to go This would be a great study. If you want to do this at home, read Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. Okay, read Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. Um, I was dead in my for you were dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to the prince of the power power of the air. Um, Say that again. Yes, Uh, we also too were children of wrath by nature, children of wrath. Uh, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, okay? Read those three verses and then come read chapter 16 of Ezekiel and then climb into this chapter as being who it's talking about. Listen to this. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Just put your name in there. Make known to Ben his abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of Canaanite, of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No, eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. That was my condition and your condition before Christ. If you want to know what you look like, let's read on. Okay, we're, remember we're dead in our trespasses and sins? That's what this describes. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, okay, you think there was something redeeming about Israel? That maybe God chose them because there was something special about them? I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, Live. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at, that time, at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. This isn't just Israel's story. This is Adam and Eve's story. Remember I introduced you to this picture where Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden? From that walking in the cool of the day relationship? And that same thing happened to Israel? That's that's our lot. That's our situation. This is about us too. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Just kind of import Adam and Eve into this story. Eat from any tree in the garden freely, all you want. Knock yourself out. Enjoy my abundant table. You were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels, Made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you play the harlot, or that you might play the harlot with them. If you wonder what's that saying, read it again. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and, and, and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So so it happened, declares the Lord. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. And then it came about after all your wickedness, "'Woe, woe to you,' declares the Lord, "'that you built yourself a shrine "'and made yourself a high place in every square. "'You built yourself a high place at the top of every street "'and made your beauty abominable, "'and you spread your legs to every passerby "'to multiply your harlotry. "'You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, "'your lustful neighbors, "'and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. "'Behold now, I've stretched out my hand against you "'and diminished your rations, "'and I delivered you up to to the desire "'of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, "'who are ashamed of your lewd conduct.' Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart? Luke just learned Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. That's another reference for these verses that you're hearing one after another for all are in league with these guys and fall short of God's glory. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That would be the picture of these chapters right here. This is the wages of sin. And then we're going to look at what happens here in a minute. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square in disdaining money, you were not, not like a harlot. He says, you're even worse than a harlot here. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men gives, give gifts to all harlots. He's saying that at least a whore gets paid for her job. But you're so bad, you pay the man. You pay the the guys that visit you, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction from your harlotries. Thus, you're different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given you. Thus, you are different. We'll jump down to Verse 41. No, I'm going to keep going. Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. The wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot. Who stops who? I'm going to stop you from playing the harlot. Humanity. And you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. Look at verse 60. He goes on just to tell them more about their condition. And then in verse 60, what I put out to the side of that is if you become acquainted with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, verse 4 starts with my two favorite words in the whole Bible. Does anybody know what they are? But God... Thank you for having those two words in there because it means that something is about God's about to do something. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, walking court of the prince of the power of the air. Oh, but we also were children of wrath by nature. But God made us alive together with Christ. I was playing the harlot with the world, but God made me alive together with Christ. In verse sixty, nevertheless, I mean you could insert you whore. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall what? You shall know that I am the Lord so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I've forgiven you and all that you've done, the Lord God declares. A couple of snapshots to end with tonight. Chapter 36 of Ezekiel. It's written to the same people that he's just called a harlot. And that's pretty graphic. I mean, he didn't just say, you guys are like a whore. He got pretty detailed there. Here's what happens, in verse in chapter 36. All these enemies are coming against them, and he says, um, uh, "For good reason they have made." This is actually in verse three. For good reason they've made you desolate and crushed you from every side, that you would become a possession of the rest of the nations, and you've been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. And then down in verse six, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you've endured the insults of the nations. In verse nine, for behold. I am for you. What? That just doesn't stand a reason. God, you're for a harlot? He says, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. In verse 11, at the end of verse 11, Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 15, I will not let you hear insults from the nations anymore, although you are what you are. I will not let you hear insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer. Verse 22, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name. That's what salvation is about. Man, if we can embrace who we really are and go, okay, all right, that's brutal, God. But I I'll I I'll, I'll recognize who I am, and I recognize who you are, and now I recognize why. Why did he do this? For the sake of his holy name. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. That's what God is about. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, verse 23. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you. I will make you alive together with Christ. And I will raise you, not only just save you from death and hell, but I'm going to seat you with the victor, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to make you alive together with Christ. Christ. And why am I going to do that? Not by works. Not because you did anything special. I'm doing that by grace. It's it's because you're saved by faith. And even that is a gift from God. When we see this thing in perspective, there's just no room for us to even consider that there's any role in it for us. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Who's the doer? God is. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. We can't even obey except that he causes us to. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Man, I need that backdrop. He stinketh. There are riches in realizing that we stinketh. Because when you realize you do, you realize what grace is. We don't know what grace is but the backdrop of what we really are. I I hope that this... um, study these last few weeks has helped you i i find from this study it's helped it's helped me god seems far less interested in preserving man's choice as he does in glorifying himself as powerful yet graceful as just yet merciful as holy yet creative in making a way for an unholy people to engage him that's what i see from this big old god It's about His glory as deliverer. I hope this study has given you a bigger view of God and a more realistic view of yourself. I hope you're cultivating a habit of trusting God even when you don't understand Him. Even when it doesn't necessarily reason. I hope that also you don't think that you've arrived in your understanding of Him. I confess that I don't think I've arrived. But I stand more and more passionate as more and more satellites are added in because I'm more and more sure of where I stand. But hopefully it's still bathed in humility. God's wonderful complexities and mystery is worth exploring and enjoying for eternity. I'm going to leave you with these thoughts Piper um, shared that I thought were really good. Um, Who can comprehend that God hears and understands prayers from millions of people worldwide, and yet He sympathizes with each one personally like a caring father? Who can comprehend that, God? Who can comprehend that God is angry at the sin of the world every day and yet every moment He's rejoicing when a sinner repents? Who can comprehend that God continually burns with hot anger at the rebellion of the wicked and grieves over the unholy speech of His people and yet takes pleasure in them daily? Who can comprehend that God? We serve and worship and love a big, big, mysterious God. It's not tidy, but this book has got to define where we stand. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray that um, this time that we've engaged you in the Word has brought glory to you, and I pray that it brings, continues to bring glory to you as you find a people that are more captivated with you and more in awe of the gospel and more surprised by grace. I pray that this has resulted in a people that are more given over to a, um a bigger view of you and a more realistic view of our desperate condition. Lord, I pray that on the other side of appreciating our stench that you will show us um, what it means or what the cross really meant and what your continuing grace means. And I pray that, that uh, life-changing, those life-changing realities will just give us a song and give us a dance and give us just a life of worship that is uh, rich and um, infectious and aromatic and salty and bright. Lord, we offer no scheme to reach Greenville. We just want to be a captivated people. And we just want you to draw people to the sun. We beg you for that. We pray that they'll find a hungry, captivated people. We love you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.